House of Horrors, Part 3, Take 1, and 3, 2, 1. A dreary day here in our Sunshine Room studio in beautiful suburban Folkroft. We're getting pelted by the after effects of Hurricane Ian, hoping all my friends in Florida escape damage. In the first episode, we got a good look at Gary Heidnick, and in the second episode, we took a look inside his torture chamber. Now, it's time to see justice served. We left the story on March 23, 1987, when Detective Eddie Rocks arrests Gary Heidnick. Gary Heidnick's process been held without bail. As I mentioned, I worked with Eddie Rocks on at least a half dozen murder cases. Over the years, I worked with some of the best homicide detectives in the world, and Eddie doesn't take a back seat to anyone. By the way, that night after his arrest, Gary Heidnick tries to hang himself in the shower. He's then delivered to a local hospital for psychiatric evaluation. Now let's move up to July 1988. Nearly 16 months pass before Gary Heidnick's trial begins in a sixth floor courtroom inside Philadelphia City Hall. He's charged with the murders of Sandy Lindsay and Debbie Dudley, plus a few assorted other charges. Future Philadelphia District Attorney Lynn Abraham is presiding. And I'd be remiss if I didn't identify the defense attorney at this point. He's A. Charles Bruto Jr. He and his father, A. Charles Sr., combined one of the most highly regarded law firms in Philadelphia. Chuck Peruto, as he's known around town, is young, handsome, and rich. And he's as highly regarded as a womanizer as he is a defense attorney. In addition to Gary Heidnick, his list of clients include the city of brotherly love's mafia bosses, Nicky Scarfo, and skinny Joey Merlino, plus one Joey Coyle. Joey Coyle was an unemployed longshoreman who found $1.2 million on the street after it fell out of an armored car. His exploits were turned into author Mark Bowden's Finders Keepers, the man who found a million dollars. The story also became the 1993 movie Money for Nothing, starring John Cusack, Debbie Mazur, and Michael Madsen. I lived and worked in Center City when that happened, and saw the movie a couple times. A little dirt fell into Chuck's life as well, when his gorgeous 26-year-old paralegal was found dead in the bathtub of his lavish Rittenhouse Square condo over Memorial Day in 2013. That mysterious incident involved in 2018's TV movie, The Girl in the Bathtub, starring Caitlin Stacy, Kate Isaac, and Warren Abbott. Don't know any of those three and never saw the movie. Chuck Prudo insists that it's impossible to find 12 impartial jurors in Philadelphia. And the court agrees. So the jury consists of residents from the city of Pittsburgh, 300 miles to the west. Now, there's no doubt Gary Heidnick kidnapped six women and held them captive in his home on North Marshall Street. There's no doubt he sexually abused them and tortured them. And there's no doubt he murdered two of his captives. But a doubt exists about whether he'll be convicted of those crimes or be ruled not guilty because he's crazy. Therefore, Chuck Peruto employs the insanity defense. My client is not innocent, Bruto announces in court. We're not relying on that assumption. He is very guilty. 
This is not who done it. This is a case of why it was done. My client is relying on the defense of mental infirmity. His criminal acts will show him to be insane. During the trial, Prudo tries to paint his client as being certifiably nuts. If you want to demonstrate that someone is insane, Prudo explains, then they got to fucking look insane. During the trial, he looked like a total whack job. Did I do that? Yeah. But doesn't women organized against rape dress up their victims to make them look wholesome? He's bonkers. I seem to hear evidence in there that Mr. Heidnick was saying that he wanted to make these girls pregnant and raise a family in the basement. Now, if you're going to tell me that's a testimony of a sane man, then I got to get out of this business. In addition, Prudhoe insists that the Army use this client as a human guinea pig to secretly test the effects of LSD. He admits that the Pentagon denies those claims, but whenever a member of his staff tries to access those records by a computer, lights start flashing and buzzers start buzzing. I found out that my client was a guinea pig for the U.S. Army, Prudhoe says, and it will be proven beyond any doubt. He claims that Gary Heidnick became insane due to the hallucinogenic LSD experiment. He says that Gary Heidnick's Army records and his Veterans Administration documents show that he was a subject of LSD testing between 1961 and 1963. Naturally, an Army spokesman denies that supposition. Nothing exists in his Army record on file, an Army spokesman contends, that shows any such testing. So who do we believe? To me, when you smell smoke, you often find fire. But the prosecutor sings a different tune. Charles F. Gallagher III is not only seeking a conviction, but he's also seeking the death penalty. This man is legally sane, Gallagher tells the jury. He knew what he was doing, and he did it with torture. He kept his victims chained. He repeatedly beat them, and he eventually killed two of them. The evidence will come from the four survivors. You will see how Gary Heidnick took advantage of the underprivileged. The prosecutor calls all four survivors, Josefina Rivera, Lisa Thomas, Jacqueline Askins, and Agnes Adams, to the witness stand. And all four testify about the horrors they endured. In attempting to verify Gary Heidnick's sanity, Gallagher mentions that the accused possesses an IQ of 148. He mentions that at the time of the arrest, Gary Heidnick's bank and brokerage accounts showed a balance of more than $550,000. And he calls Heidnick's Merrill Lynch financial advisor to testify. Mr. Heidnick, the financial advisor testifies, was an astute investor who knew exactly what he was doing to amass that amount of money. Gary Heidnick takes a stand and denies everything. He says he never kidnapped anyone. He insists that the women were already living in his home when he moved in. He denies all allegations of mistreatment of the women. He claims they killed Sandy Lindsay, not him, because she was a lesbian and she was making sexual advances toward them. Which way will the jury go? Well, on July 1st, 1988, the jury convicts Gary Heidnick on two counts of murdering Sandy Lindsay and Debbie Dudley, six counts of kidnapping, five counts of rape, 
four counts of aggravated assault, and two counts of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. Judge Abraham sentences him to be put to death. He's then incarcerated on death row at the Western State Correctional Institute outside Pittsburgh, awaiting his execution. Since the death penalty was instituted in Pennsylvania way back in 1693, the state executed 1,043 convicted killers. Hanging was the method used until 1913. Then came the electric chair until 1990, when Governor Patrick Casey changed the method to lethal injection. But the state hadn't executed anyone in the previous 26 years, not since the execution of Elmo Smith in 1962. So, will Gary Heidnick be put to death via lethal injection, or will he die from old age on death row? May 2nd, 1995. Seven years pass since Judge Lynn Abraham sentenced Gary Heidnick to be put to death. He sits on death row awaiting his fate. However, after just six months of incarceration, he attempts to commit suicide by taking an overdose of his prescribed Thorazine. But he fails. Then, for the first time in 33 years, the state executes Keith Zettelmoyer. And just three months later, on August 16th, the state executes multiple murderer Leon Moser. The state then schedules Gary Heidnick's execution to be carried out two years hence in 1997, which prompts his ex-wife Betty Disto Heidnick and daughter Maxine to file a suit in federal court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. They're requesting a stay of execution on the basis that he's not competent enough to be executed. At the same time, Chuck Peruto is trying to get the sentence commuted from the death penalty to life imprisonment. And the ploy works, at least for the time being. The state postpones the execution for two years, until the summer of 1999. That gives Chuck Peruto more time to appeal. Although Gary Heidnick never appeals the guilty verdict, he continues to successfully appeal his sentencing all the while. Crazy or not, he doesn't want to be executed. At a hearing on April 14, 1999, Gary Heidnick speaks in his own behalf. You people, I think I commit murders that I have not committed, he testifies. And I have refused to appeal my case. I still refuse, even though I can prove my innocence. Right. Yet I still refuse to appeal my case. I resent this kind of shit being done to a disabled veteran. But when it appears that the judge remains unconvinced and unmoved, Gary Heidnick suddenly asks to be executed. Now he wants to go out as a martyr. He contends that when the world sees an innocent man wrongfully executed, Public sentiment will demand that the death penalty be abolished for once and for all. After years of legal proceedings in various courts, on July 3, 1999, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania issues its final ruling, clearing the way for Heidnick's execution. But Chuck Peruto never gives up on defending his client. He takes the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, July 6, 1999.
the day of doom finally arrives for Gary Heidnick. Shortly after noon, he arrives at the State Correctional Institute in Rockview, in the center of the state, a few miles from State College. It's a sweltering hot day, so the guards place an air conditioning unit in his cell to keep him cool. He spends the day lying or sitting on his bed or pacing in his cell. At 5.40 that afternoon, the condemned man sits down to eat his proverbial last hearty meal. But in his case, his last meal consists of two slices of plain cheese pizza and two cups of black coffee. And while Gary Heidnick's eating pizza and drinking coffee, the U.S. Supreme Court still in its chambers deliberating whether or not to make a last-minute decision to overturn Gary Heidnick's death sentence. At the same time, protesters against the death penalty are demonstrating outside the governor's mansion in Harrisburg. Around 9.30, the U.S. Supreme Court refuses to intervene. Gary Heidnick is going to be put to death by lethal injection. At 10 p.m., Prison guards escort him into the death chamber. At 10.18, the curtain of the execution chamber opens. Gary Heidnick is lying on a gurney with a sheet covering him up to his shoulders and his right arm strapped to a support. On one side of a plexiglass shield, off to the side, stand two family members and a spiritual advisor. And on the other side of a large bulletproof window, is a gallery of witnesses to view the execution. Six members of the media and ten private citizens are watching and waiting. Soon after Gary Heidnick is lethally injected, his face turns red, and then a short while later, it turns ashen. At 10.28, the Center County Coroner pronounces Gary Heidnick dead, and applause breaks out from the witnesses. Thank you, Jesus! One witness calls out. His body is cremated. And as of this writing, Gary Heidnick is the last person executed in Pennsylvania. So, that's it for Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors. Remember, my House of Horrors ebook is available on Amazon, reasonably priced. Thanks for stopping in today. Until next time, see you. And that's a wrap.